Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My guest today is Charles Rose. Charles Rose is the trombonist, horn arranger, and leader of the Muscle Shoals Horns. And as a member of them and independently, he's worked on records and live performances with a who's who of, of artists. He just got off the road from a Lie Love It tour. He's been playing with Lie Love It for the past, he'll tell me exactly how long, but I would say the last 20 or 25 years. And it's my thrill to have him here as my guest today. Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Charles. Thank you. So uh, you just got off the road with Lyle Lovett, and Lyle has one of the greatest bands, if you ask me, that has not just the four of you horn players, but also drums, bass, cello, fiddle, electric guitar, uh, steel, background vocals and it's a band that can almost play any style of music how do you appreciate or experience that particular gig it is a really good band just many what i would consider virtuosos in the band and um, so i'm just trying to keep up with the rest of them and one thing that i like too he Every show, he has a moment where he lets every member in the band shine, either by giving him a solo or a, a lead vocal or anything like that. How well is that set that you're playing rehearsed? Is that something that's very well planned, or does that happen spontaneously? Well, the, um, the set can change every night. And we don't get a set list. Lau hand writes a set list, and we typically don't get it till maybe 15 minutes before we go on. It's been in recent years fairly consistent, but there are changes every night. Yeah. What What's your exact role in that organization besides playing trombone? Because I know you've been writing a lot of the horn arrangements too. Well, that's it. When I started the gig in 1994, they had been together since 1988. And, you know, it was my good friend Harvey Thompson and, and Ronnie Eads, who was the original Barry player and the Muscle Shoals horns, were in the very first horn section. It was just three saxes, alto tenor Barry. And uh, Ronnie soon left. And uh, because he wrote a song called Penguins that uh, needed brass, uh, in 94, they added trumpet and trombone. So one year it was trumpet, trombone, tenor, and we just kind of took the existing alto tenor berry parts and transposed them to trumpet and trombone and got by that way. And then the following year, they added the alto back, and 
Then they paid me to rearrange all the existing charts for that instrumentation. And then since then, I have written most every horn chart that's been created. Since then, it's been created by me. I wrote I wrote two new horn charts, just this tour that just finished. Yeah, and you've been out most every summer, at least for the past four years and I think this is the fifth summer in a row it hasn't quite been every summer and there and there are some intermittent gigs throughout the year sometimes you know we did a this year we did a week in May and we did a one gig in Aspen Colorado in June and then the uh, the tour was actually about seven weeks this this year okay and uh, you grew up here in in Sheffield in the Muscle Shoals area what are some of your earliest musical memories growing up? Well, my mother played piano and sang. My father had no musical talent whatsoever, so I think most of uh, the, the some of the earliest things I remember are hearing my mother play the piano and sing. She was very good. She could read music. She could also improvise, you know, and she had a record collection. Um, so, you know, I remember listening to a lot of stuff she listened to. And you were not the only one of your brothers who eventually picked up an instrument either, right? We all, we all took piano lessons in elementary school. I had three brothers, and I was the third. We all studied piano in elementary school, and then in um, the school band we all played a brass instrument. I was going to play trumpet. My brother George, who was two years older, was playing trombone and convinced me that I should play trombone also. So my father wanted one of us to play the saxophone, and none of us chose that, you know. So you you played in school, and what was the first time you actually considered making that a career because you eventually studied music too? I think... Fairly early in high school, maybe by the uh, 10th grade, I just thought I wanted to major in music in college. <laughs> and um, I wanna, my first goal was to be a high school band director. Then you went to college. I went to college, a school. My second high school band director, Charles Cobb, had gone to Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky, about a little less than three hours away from here. And um, so I uh, I went to Murray. I didn't apply anywhere else, just to Murray. And I uh, started the summer after I graduated high school, the summer of 1968. And uh, I was a bass trombone major for one year before switching to, to tenor trombone. And... Uh, and for one semester, I think, I was a music education major. And then after talking to some of the upperclassmen, I uh, switched to applied music after one semester. And my minor was piano. I had to have a minor instrument. And it was piano since I had a little, you know, a little bit of proficiency in piano. From the early piano lessons and my major was trombone. And you started a band, too, when you were in college? 
Yeah, uh, another friend of mine from Sheffield High School, Gary Armstrong, who was one year behind me at Play Trumpet, he and uh, two other fellows from Sheffield went to Murray. They came up the following year after I started. And in the uh, fall of 1970, we started a band, and we were all music majors at Murray State, and it had the unwieldy name, Clap Hands, Here Comes Charlie, which was an old Ella Fitzgerald song. That kind of got shortened to... Clap Hands or CHHCC, and we were very popular. It was the uh, Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tears heyday, and so we were. That was our main goal: were to learn a lot of Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tears songs. But we also uh, played things like the Beatles got to get you into my life, and uh, we played uh, we played a soul music medley, and included in that soul music medley was. Uh, Wilson Pickett's Funky Broadway and Etta James' Tell Mama. And I had no idea at the time that they had been recorded in Muscle Shows. I had no idea. Just found that out later. So that was the fall of 1970. I had literally no experience whatsoever before before that band. Uh, I had played either bass or piano in a couple of garage bands and maybe had went and played maybe one rehearsal with a couple of different bands on trombone in high school but had never played a gig with a with a, with a rock band until that band uh up at murray and we were we were pretty successful we thought you know we uh we, we played a lot you know, we played clubs and we played for sororities and fraternities, and we were very popular. You know, people would come up and say, "Hey, you guys sound more like Chicago than Chicago does." You know, and uh, so that was the fall of 1970. Uh, the following spring, my brother George came up to pick me up for spring break to take me home, and on the way home, he wrecked the car and I fractured my pelvis. So I turned. Uh, I turned 21 May the 11th uh, the, that spring in the hospital. I was in hospital three weeks, had a fractured pelvis. I got out of the hospital, I had to be on crutches. And so um, I didn't want to go back to school. I'd already missed, you know, three weeks and was going to have to hobble around on crutches the rest of the semester. So my father wanted me to uh, go back and finish the spring semester. I just wanted to, to, to lay out, so I did. So I was just happened to be home that summer, and my father went out and emptied the trash one day, and he walked back in and with this uh, with this fellow, and he introduced me and said, "Charles, this guy lives across the block. His name's Sonny Royal. He plays the sax, and he has a horn section, and they need a trombone player." And uh, I kind of knew who this guy Sonny Royal was because I'd seen an article in the paper about some some gig he had played. And sure enough, uh, he and three other fellows had come up from the uh, from the Auburn Montgomery area and started a rival horn section to the Muscle Shells Horns, who I really didn't know at all at the time. I'd never set foot in any of the local studios, and uh, their trombone player had left them to join the Muscle Shells Horns, so they needed a trombone player. So. They took me down to Quinn Ivy's studio. It wasn't the one on Second Street where "When a Man Loves When a Man Loves a Woman" was recorded. It was his new one over on Broadway. And they put a uh, a tape on an existing tape from a session that had a couple of blank tracks. I think they were still 
eight track at the time. They might have been 12 track. And uh, we did a dummy horn session. Tried to make up some parts and then record them. And the engineer was a guy I was in high school with, David Johnson, who later, you know, of course, ended up owning that studio and then became the head of the Alabama Music Hall of Fame. And they seemed to think I did pretty good on the uh, on the tryout. I think that's the only time I've ever tried out for anything in my life, actually. And so the following week, they called me down and we did a session. And it was um, for a producer named Jerry Williams, known as Swamp Dog, yeah. And the artist was uh, ZZ Hill, who I later ended up recording with extensively down uh, for for Malico Records. And uh, so I recorded, we recorded that album. We did, you know, I don't know, maybe a whole album's worth of horn parts with no charts in, in one sitting. And then the next session I did with them was uh, also produced by Jerry Williams, and it was uh, an artist, a blues artist, Lightning Slim. And uh, Lightning Slim was one of the blues artists that had not established a 12-bar blues pattern you know, like the original Delta Blues Singers, one chorus might be 11 bars, one might be 12, one might be 12 and a half or 13, yeah. depending on the lyric. So they had to cut the entire album live with him singing and playing guitar. And uh, of course, I didn't know any musicians in town at the time, but I got there pretty soon after he had cut tracks and Clayton Ivey was recording an organ solo and I had never heard anything like that in my life. He was so good. And uh, so we started doing horns. We did the entire, uh, it, it must have been, you know, 10 or 12 songs, almost all of them in the key of E, E blues. And we did uh, everything in one sitting with no charts. Then I think Jerry actually uh, brought uh, the background singers in and did a couple of background vocals and then he mixed the entire album. So this entire album was done in one day. And I thought everyone, that was my second session, I thought everyone worked that fast. <laughs> Little did I know that <laughs> that wasn't the case. So uh, I did, you know, many other sessions with them. I started back college in the fall, but I was commuting down and doing sessions with them. So uh, who, who was in the horn section besides you and Sonny Royal? Sonny Royal played uh, tenor and... Uh, Mike Stile played trumpet. He was the band director at um, T.M. Rogers, I think, or maybe it was uh, Lauderdale County. And uh, Stacy Goss was the other trumpet, and he was the band director at Brooks High School. Was that unit labeled Muscle Shells Brass? Yeah, I think at times we were called the Muscle Shells Brass. And I couldn't tell you how many sessions I did with them, but... I was back home. I started so I started back college in the fall, and uh, I came home for Christmas break and went over to see Sonny. And he said, "Hey, uh, I just had a call from Jimmy Johnson at Muscle Shell Sound. He wants me to come by and talk to him." He says, "Come on, you can go with me." And uh, so we went down. This was thirty six fourteen. We went down to Muscle Shell Sound, and Jimmy. Uh, Sonny introduced me to him, and Jimmy had met my brother George because my brother George's best friend was Jimmy's younger brother, Earl. 
And George had been to some of the studios and got to, he'd even met Dwayne Allman, you know, several years earlier when he was in town doing sessions and uh, had a lot of Dwayne Allman stories just before, you know, anybody knew who the Allman brothers was. So, so Jimmy had met my brother, but he had never met me. And when we walked in, Jimmy says, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. I've heard good things about you. And that surprised me. We said, I've got a session tonight for this guy, Jim Capaldi. Of course, Jim Capaldi was the drummer in Traffic, and he was doing a, a solo album. And he said, uh, I want uh, Sonny, I want you and Stacy Goss and Charles to play with Muscle Shoals Horns on, on this album. So three of us came down. Uh, the trombonists who had left their section to play with the Muscle Shoals Horns, I guess, had already left the Muscle Shoals horns for some reason. And uh, so it was the three of us plus Harrison Calloway, Ronnie Eads, and Harvey Thompson. And we did that uh, We did that session, and after that session, I started getting calls from the Muscle Shoals horns the following year, you know. It would have been early 72. Uh, so at that point, I was playing with both sections. And at some point... Uh, the two trumpet players and the Muscle Shoals Brass, Mike and Stacy, both took jobs elsewhere. And uh, so there was not another section. And uh, I got out of college in the spring of 73 and came back. And my father offered to put me through graduate school, but I thought, well, I'm already, I've been doing this for a couple of years now. So I thought I would just stick, you know, with the session scene. Yeah, and there were some very memorable sessions coming later too. But you told me once uh, this story of that you went down to Muscle Shoals Sound, and uh, there was somebody sitting there that you uh, you kind of thought it looked like an artist. Can you tell me that story without me giving too much away? Well, there are a couple of those. I think you're talking about. Uh this would have been my Christmas break the following year, 72, I think it was. Uh, at the time, to publish a song, you needed to have a lead sheet, which consisted of a melody, the chord symbols, and the lyrics. You had to have that physical lead sheet before you could publish a song. That's not the case anymore. So it was uh, it was in-demand work, but it did not pay very much. It did not pay very much at all. There weren't that many people that could actually do it. I know the band director over at Muscle Shoals High School, Charles Stratford, did did some. And so when I was around, you know, I did I did lead sheets. I was doing them for Muscle Shoals Sound Publishing and Wishbone Publishing. So I had finished some sheets and came down to turn them into Jimmy one afternoon. And uh, I came in the front door, and the secretary said, well, the red light's on. Uh, just wait a second. And the red light went off. She said, we're going back and talk to Jimmy. So they were in the middle of a session. I went back and said, hey, I got these sheets. You want me to leave them on your desk? And he said, no, just sit down here in this chair. You know, it was that famous kind of orange, easy chair that was sitting there forever. He said, just sit down. We'll finish the session. So they started recording uh, this track and this kind of uh, long-haired guy playing acoustic guitar who was obviously the artist. He was, he, they were working on this song. I remember Pete Carr was there and Barry and you know, Roger and David and Jimmy and I kept thinking this guy looks a little familiar, you know, and 
they were they were working on this song about a camera, and then uh, all of a sudden, you know, Steve uh, Steve Melton, the assistant engineer, engineer came out and said, uh, "Hey, did you like Yes's version of America?" And I said, "America, that's Paul Simon." <laughs> and sure enough, it was. But you know, no one told me. You know, no one told me he was there. So. I was afraid to, you know, say anything. I said, are you Paul Simon? <laughs> anyway, I, I sat there and watched them cut Kodachrome. A, a similar thing happened maybe a year or so later. Uh, I came down to 3614 to do a session, and I noticed some scruffy-looking guy sitting in a van with another fellow in the parking lot. I said, I wonder who those guys are. And we were working for Jerry Wexler for this artist, Barry Goldberg, and so we started working, and you know, again, no charts. Most of everything we did then was a, were head sessions, you know, being a session with no written arrangements. And uh, we started working on a song, and Wexler was in the control room, and all of a sudden this guy I saw out in the van came in, sat down next to Wexler in the control room, and I kept looking at him, and that guy looks like Bob Dylan. But surely it's not, you know, somebody would have said something. A few minutes later, Wexler said, hey, Charlie, come in the control room. And I walked in. He said, hey, Charlie, uh, this is Bob Dylan. He wants to hum you a lick. <laughs> so, and, and after that, he also ended up playing on Dylan's Slow Train Come. Yeah, yeah, that was year, several years later. Yeah, And that was after they moved down to the, to the river. Yeah. yeah. A little earlier in 74, you were working at Muscle Shoals Sound, and you got a call from... What ended up Elton John, but if you tell me the whole story, it's funnier than just that. I think you remember more of the story than I do. Well, I do not Harrison remember. Harrison Calloway yeah, told yeah. me <laughs> that there's hey, there's a phone call, you know, for you, and he went back, I guess, in the control room, and this was apparently Elton John, and uh, he just kind of said something like, "Hey, we're in a session. Call me back later," and he hung up, and then so thankfully he. I guess he, he called back a little bit later. But I guess what happened was that Tower of Power played on on one of played on his Bitches Back album. Record. And then what's the Cherry Wexler connection that got you guys on the on the map? Yeah. Well, um so Tower of Power did his um album and they weren't available for his tour in seventy four, so um Jerry Wexler's uh, sister-in-law worked for John Reed Productions, you know, who who, who worked for Elton. So uh, they asked, uh, I think her name was Connie, and they asked Connie, and said, uh, hey, ask your brother-in-law who's a good horn section. So she asked Jerry Wexler, her, her brother-in-law, and he, he said, call the Muscle Shells Horns. So we got called to do that, and... Um, Originally, we were just going to go out and do about several cities, maybe, you know, I can't remember now, six or eight gigs. And we went out to Los Angeles, and uh, they had some of the, uh, the, you know, the Tower Power charts. And then we we, uh, wrote some, meaning Harrison wrote most of them. He was the arranger then. But I think I remember writing uh, the chart to uh, Honky Cat, you know, which had horn parts, so I remember transcribing that, you know, that's what we played on it. So after we did one rehearsal, they asked us uh, if we wanted to do the entire tour, and we came to agreement, so we did the tour. 
And it seemed like it was a long tour. It seemed like it was two and a half, three months long all over this country and Canada. And then after that tour ended, we went over and did a week in London uh, at the Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, the last gig, I think, was on Christmas Eve. Another thing that was unique about that tour is that John Lennon joined the entourage for a while. Uh, how did you meet John and then he eventually ended up doing a show with Elton and you guys uh, um, at Madison Square Garden later? Uh, Elton had sang on Lennon's single, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. And Elton told, uh, the story is Elton told uh, Lennon that that that's going to be number one, and John said, "No, nah, there's no way it's going to be number one record." And Elton got him to bet that if it went number one, that he would come out and sing on one of his shows that fall. And sure enough, it became number one. So he uh, he agreed to come out, and it was Thanksgiving night at um, uh, Madison Square Garden in New York. This is the gig he did. And, uh, he he came out two or three days earlier. And uh, Elton would base in one city and then fly to the outlying cities. He would base in one city all week. So uh, Lennon came out and got on the plane with us. We we had that least seven on seven known as the Starship that you know Led Zeppelin and many other bands had all leased you know to do tours. And um, we flew over to Boston for a gig. So you know Lennon was on the plane with us going and coming and at the gig and I didn't really approach him. There was, you know, a lot of people and didn't want to bother him. So I had, I didn't really talk to him the entire time. Uh, so maybe another day later, uh, a couple of days before Thanksgiving, we went, we were supposed to go down to the record plant to rehearse with him. So a uh, car picked up the horn section at our, hotel and took us to the record plant and we walked in the door the other three guys you know always walked slower than I did you know I would be in an airport and I'd look back they would be like a quarter mile behind me in the airport they walked so slow so I was the first one uh you know through the door into the uh into the into the studio and there was Lennon standing there with with some of the uh you know studio personnel and Lennon, you know, of course, it recognized, you know, me from, from the couple of days before and said, oh, the horn section's here. And when I walked up to him, he held out his hand uh, and said, hello, I'm John Lennon. And I said, well, I was pretty sure that was you. <laughs> and he was just, you know, just completely friendly. I read later it was one of the darkest periods of his life, you know. He was separated from Yoko. Uh, but he was just completely friendly and... We, uh, of course, we were going to do Whatever Gets You Through the Night and Lucy in the Skies with Diamonds because that was a single that Elton had out at the time. So those two uh, were givens. And Elton wanted him to sing Imagine. And uh, John said, I, I, just, I just don't feel like singing that, you know. So Elton said, well, what do you want to sing? And Lennon didn't, you know, uh, nothing comes to mind, so that's when I realized Elton was such a Beatles fan because he just immediately just started playing and singing Beatles songs. 
he'd play like you know eight or twelve bars of a song and say, "What about this, John?" And John said, "Nah," and he would play another one. And it seemed like he played about twenty songs, you know. And then each one would go, "Nah, don't want to do that." And finally, he started singing. Uh, I saw her standing there, and 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 John says, "Yeah, oh yeah, I remember that. Let's do that." <laughs> Of course, it turns out later that was one of the songs that was completely written by Paul McCartney. You know, although they all said Lennon McCartney, you know, several songs were independently written, and he didn't seem to mind that at all. So on the show, when he uh, when he introduced it, he said, "I'd like to do a, do a song by an old estranged fiance of mine." Yeah. Yeah, and those performances were later released too on a on an EP and. Now they're available on a live double album called Here yeah, and There. I think they came out on you know, bootlegs way before they were officially released. We actually recorded at the record plant, too, and I've never heard those recordings. They must not have been very you know, suitable. They weren't really set up to record, I think. They just hung a mic and recorded. Yeah, well, you never know what still might come out. Uh, with the passage of time, they're about to reissue the White Album with like three CDs of bonus material, including all the demos. Yeah, I've been seeing that on Google. So um, you were mainly a studio horn section, and this was, I think, at that time, the one exception of a long tour you guys did. But you did some more live work. Didn't you play some with uh, Toby Gray? Well, that was earlier that same year. Um, we had gone up to Quadraphonic and recorded uh, uh, on a Adobe Gray album. And we were asked, this is, uh, I can't remember exactly when, maybe June, June of 74, uh, we were asked to go out and do a week-long showcase at the Troubadour. And this, this was a really great band, you know, um, uh, David Briggs, and uh, Kenny Malone and Mike Leach and Reggie Young and Lonnie Mack and Troy Sills were all in the band. So it was just a really incredibly good rhythm section. And the four of us, the Muscle Shells Horns, and uh, we were uh, playing every night. Uh, uh, there was a opening act at a James <laughs> so that, with Bobby Keys and Steve Medeo playing horn for her. And so, uh, yeah, we were in the thick of that week, and Ronnie's wife called. She was our secretary, and Ronnie and I actually got called to do a session for Paul McCartney that week. He was in Nashville, staying at Buddy Killen's. Buddy, Buddy Killen, you know, of course, produced Joe Tex, and we, we did a lot of stuff for him, him originally being here from Florence. And... uh so, but we were out in L.A. all week, and I said, come on, Ronnie, let's buy plane tickets and get some subs for the gig and go do it. And, and of course, the other three guys said, well, we can't do that. We're in the middle of this gig, you know, so we really couldn't. So uh, I think that would have been uh, uh, on the song Junior's Farm. You know, he did, he recorded Junior's Farm and Sally G that week in Nashville and and so, you, you thought you you missed your one op opportunity to to work with Paul McCartney? Yeah, that's what I pretty much thought, yeah. But uh, that didn't turn out 
that way for you because early this year you actually ended up working for him yeah um i guess back before, right before christmas i got a call and um we were uh, we were recommended to his producer and uh, so i i knew that was a possibility for I don't know, three weeks or so, and then finally, uh, maybe about the end of the first week in January, I got a call that they definitely wants to come out in about two and a half weeks. So we went out late January to Los Angeles and worked six hours. We recorded parts on six different songs. And um, I think at least three of them are on the the, uh, on the album, uh, I knew he had many more songs in the can than would end up on his next album. You know. Yeah, and one of them is the single "Come On to Me," uh, which where the horns is heavily featured on it. On it too. I wouldn't say heavily, but we're we're on there. Yeah, well, there's a horn break <laughs> at least. <laughs> and. Yeah, that's a big thrill. Yeah, and I'm a several, lifelong Beatles fan. I think my brother George and I actually bought the first Beatles album that was ever sold in most of the shows down at Quinn Ivy's Toontown on Second Street in Sheffield. We haunted them every day for like three weeks until the the album came in. It was the VJ album, you know, which is roughly equivalent of me introducing uh, meet meet. The, it was called introducing the Beatles. It's roughly the equivalent of the Capitals uh, meet the Beatles. Yeah. So, uh, Paul McCartney, obviously, that must be one of the you know bucket list type of type type of records. But I know you guys, no matter who you work for, you know you're always on top of it. You're always really well prepared. Uh, not particularly the McCartney session where you actually ended up doing head arrangements. But you also, most of the time, write the horn arrangement for the section. Yeah, when I when I joined them, um, I was 21, so Harvey would have been uh, 30, Ronnie would have been 29, Harrison would have been 31. So they're all eight, nine, ten years older. And uh, and of course they had been at it. You know, I used to watch this TV show, maybe when I was in the, uh, I don't know, 10th or 11th grade, that came on, a syndicated show that came on every Saturday night the from Beat. Dallas called The Beat, and they had this, uh, uh, it was all these great R&B and blues artists, and they had a house band, and it, I had been playing with the Muscle Shells Horns for a couple of years before I, we finally figured out that they had been the, the band I watched every Saturday night for about a year or so, you know, with my brother John, you know. They were, they were banned from Nashville. That's how Harvey got drafted and went to Vietnam was because he was out of school to do that show and came back to Tennessee State and didn't get enough hours in, and he got drafted and sent to Vietnam. But uh, so uh, so they were they were more ex- obviously more experienced than I was. Like I said, I had never played a gig with a rock band until just barely a year before I started working with the Muscle Shows Horns, you know. Uh, and uh, they, uh, the first thing I learned, I think, was how to play a short note really short. <laughs> and uh, 
So Harrison, uh, even though most of these, I would say 95% of the sessions had no charts, Harrison was the arranger, you know. I mean, if, if the rare time there was a written chart, he wrote it. And uh, on the head sessions, you know, he was the one that just decided the great majority of what we would play. And uh, I think some of my first contributions were like, well, why don't we all cut this note off on beat four, <laughs> you know, as the cutoffs, I noticed were a little ragged and... My band in college, we were more precise than, than they were used to playing. And and then um, at some point, I remember I offered a, offered a suggestion on a lick, you know, in the first year. Maybe I was playing with them. I showed horns and just Harrison just looked at me like, are you crazy? Are you actually, you know, think you know, like a good lick? And he gave me this look, you know, just scared the hell out of me so I didn't say anything else for another year just did what I was told and then one day we were working on a session I can't remember who it was but it was down at Muscle Show Sounds Studio B they had bought the old Quinn Ivy studio on 2nd Street where uh, When a Man Loves a Woman was recorded and and so consequently we would do a lot of our horn sessions down there so so that 3614 was open for rhythm section uh, sessions and I remember being down there, and uh, and I think it was Jerry Wexler and Barry Beckett were producing something. And uh, when we harmonized something, you know, prior to that, it was just everybody would just kind of grab a part. You know, we kind of knew what the top note was, and everyone else would just try to grab a harmony note, and we just, you know, mess around with it till it till it seemed acceptable. Uh, but there was one song, and it must have had, you know, a whole lot of chords in a row, and it wasn't just one, four, five chord. It's, you know, some 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 more exotic chords, and nothing we tried sounded right. And Wexler said, hey, Harrison, why don't you harmonize it? And Harrison made a stab at it, and it didn't sound any better. Well, you know, I'd been, you know, have I'd had, you know, a year of theory in high school, and you know, theory every year of college, so I knew how to part right. So Wexler said, you know, like they gave up pretty much, and Wexler said, hey, Charlie, you got an idea? And so I just harmonized everything, you know, like the eight or nine chords, and it sounded great the first time. And so at that point they said, okay, you always do the harmony. <laughs> so Harrison would mostly still come up with the with the riffs and the licks and stuff, and I would always uh, figure out how to harmonize everything. And uh, then after uh, Clayton, Ivy, and Terry Whitford opened up Wishbone, uh, I got a call from Clayton and said, listen, we're going to be doing a lot of sessions, and uh, I want you to help me uh, arrange string and horn parts. So I started working with Clayton, and uh, and so I started, you know, writing more parts. So... So through the uh, 70s, you know, I started, you know, mostly at Wishbone, but I was, you know, we started playing some of my charts, and uh, then at some point, you know, I just started writing more and more, you know. Yeah, and that's not just like for four horns or strings. Recently, you did uh, an, a whole orchestral project for Mac McAnally, for example, with like 60 or 80 pieces. So you... you well, I did. I did eight eight arrangements for small orchestra, string section, and six brass and seven woodwinds, you know, and and percussion, and then also uh, also did uh, 
some orchestral arrangements uh, that were recorded out at um, Skywalker Ranch this spring, you know, for someone else. Um, and Mac, the ones I did for Mac are out on a CD now. It's been out over a year, I guess, out the orchestra project. There might be, I think, 16 arrangements on there, and I did half of them. Yeah, and how has uh, technology or the advance of, of, of software helped you write arrangements? I bet in the beginning it was all pen and pencil. Well, I never used pen. I uh, always, uh, I was very resistant to going to software. You know, all my friends in Nashville used Finale, music writing software. I was very resistant, and I wrote uh, on paper with number one pencil. And uh, at some point, when I started doing more uh, arrangements for Malico Records, I would have to do so many charts. I didn't have time to even write a score, so I would just go straight to parts. You know, say I had you know four or six horns to write for. I would just figure out what the intro was and write it down on all the parts, and then go to the next section where I heard a part. And uh, and people, you know, my manuscript got pretty good over the years. You know, I bought a book about you know how to correctly write manuscript. They taught us that in college, but you know, I bought a book that just kind of improved on that and. A lot of people to this day, you know, I'm on, on the computer now with people, so they still like, you know, my hand charts. You know, they, they're they so easy to read. But uh, I know I was doing some charts for uh, for this blues artist, Sam Mosley, uh, for, for a weekend of gigs we had with him. And I remember I wrote so many charts for Sam Mosley that my the next morning, my arm was all swollen, <laughs> and I couldn't even hold a cup of coffee. And I'm like, wow, this is awful. So it's funny you asked me this question because you're the person that finally convinced me to get software. I mean, you didn't tell me to get software, but you, you came in when I first met you. I gave you enough, enough work that you couldn't could You gave me an assignment, and was it like 24 charts? 27. Uh, Huh? 27. 27. And they had to all be done in about three weeks or so. And I said, Which you told me you could do it in three weeks, <laughs> just to be clear. Uh, so I said, you know, I'll never be able to write that many charts in that time. You know, my, my, my arm will fall off. So uh, we were in the middle of the WC Handy Festival. So I ordered, uh, I did some research and talked to some educator friends of mine and decided to go with the Sibelius software, which was developed in Europe. And uh, probably more educators. It's may perhaps the preferred uh, software of a lot of educators. So I uh, I did my homework and talked to some friends of mine, and uh, so ordered it, and it came in. And so the day after the Handy Fest, I started uh, you know studying it and doing the uh, the uh, the online tutorials and. I thought it was going to take me a week to learn it. Well, by the end of the third day, I'd written a horn chart. So I thought, okay, this is going to be okay. <laughs> so your project, that's what... Uh, and after I had uh, that software about for about a week, I went, oh, why in the world was I so resistant to this? It's just so much incredibly better, you know, especially on, on things you use over and over again. You know, you can change the keys. You can uh, adjust the intro. You know, you can you can do anything you want to without having to write the entire chart over again you know. and you can even on the road on your laptop can work it or change things yeah around. yeah i use i, I media uh, my 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 uh, my 
piano keyboard, you know, to the computer at home, to the desktop, and 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 use the uh, you know the music keyboard and the computer keyboard. But on the road, I can just do it all on a laptop. It just takes a little bit longer, you know. But but it's very easy, you know. I've I've written a lot of charts for you on the road. You know? Of course, the two I did for Lyle, I just wrote them in in like in a hotel room, you know, with a laptop, you know. So the Muscle Shoals horns are one of the quintessential horn section of you know modern American music. What makes the Muscle Shoals horns? unique or special or what's like you guys' niche or if you will well i don't know if we're unique but i guess we have we have our own little thing uh, i uh, i said when i started this band in uh college i was really my focus was this kind of sound like you'd hear from chicago blood sweat and tears and uh, then I started working, you know, with Muscle Shell's Horns, and we had Barry Sachs. And now that's the norm for me, you know. I, I hate to do a, a gig or a session without without a Barry Sachs. Uh, so I learned, you know, I learned more about R&B music after I started. And, and Harrison, I, I tell people that, you know, my graduate work I did with Harrison Calloway. I was, he, uh, he had a real good concept about, you know, phrasing and uh and uh articulations and 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 you know and and more. just just how to how to write r&b horn chart I, I i i think i incorporated everything that that you know uh that he was doing just through sitting there and listening and playing his his arrangements and uh and I think I added my own little thing to it. You know, I always, even before I started working with Muscle Shell's Horns, we became aware of Tower Power and really liked that sound. And uh, I'm still listening, you know. Uh, I have, uh, I love all the old, uh, Otis Redding records and, and what the Memphis Horns did on that, you know. And uh, at times that was a lot different from our sound, but I, I I think I've incorporated a lot of that. Of course, you know Wayne Jackson and and uh, from the Memphis Horns and Ben Colley from uh, from the Bar Kays did a lot of sessions with us through the years. So uh, I think I learned a lot from Wayne. Not not exactly just arranging and stuff like that, but just more more or less attitude, you know, from from working sessions with Wayne. And uh, so, of course, you know, Harrison passed away a couple of years ago. And he, he, he and Ronnie, uh, Ronnie left the Muscle Shell's Horns. I guess I started with him in 71, and we were intact for, I'm not exactly sure how long it was, 15 years, maybe less than 15 years. And then Ronnie left because he, uh, he, uh, he got born again. And at some point decided he didn't want to want to play on sessions anymore, just devote his time to music ministry. And then Harrison, at some point, uh, moved to uh, moved to Jackson, Mississippi, and started playing trumpet less. And then he had problem with his with his with his teeth. And then you know later in life he just spent his time on keyboard and 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 and, uh, and songwriting and you know and recording tracks. So. Uh, so the muscle shells, the original section, it's just Harvey and I. So, uh, and uh, but but we have a cast of people that we use, you know, uh, 
uh, sort of Steve Herman and Doug Moffat from Nashville or Trumpet and Barry, respectively, on a great deal of the things we do. Many other, many other people too. Jim Horn, on uh, Barry Sachs through the years, and Benny Shishelsky, and Jim Williamson on trumpet, Steve Patrick on trumpet, Mike Haynes on trumpet. Just a lot of people. If I if I wrote down all the people that played with us, all the horn players, it I don't know, it it'd be over fifty or sixty people, I guess. You know. Yeah. But so, I tell people now, I think the Muscle horns pretty much exist in my head. You know? <laughs> it's like everything I've learned since uh, since 1971, you know, or 70, uh, it's just in my head. So uh, to, to me, well, you got to have, you know, people that have the concept and can phrase, play in tune, phrase, articulate, and play in time. Uh, but to me, it starts with, with, with the arrangement, whether it comes out, you know, comes straight out of your head or from a chart you've written. You know, it, it starts with the arrangement. If the arrangement's not there, you don't have anything. You know. The concept's not there. Yeah. So Harrison told me that when they started the Muscle Shoals Horns in '70, and I guess previously to that, they were some of them were part of the Fame Gang. And then they tried different trombone players. All three of them, yeah. yeah. Harrison and Ronnie and uh, Harvey, of course, were all in, came down to work for Rick Holler in the Fame Gang. Yeah. But he told me, and then they tried a few trombone players, too. And uh, he told me when Charles joined us, or when Charles started playing with us, he knew that the section was there and that the, the blend was what it, what it needed to be to be great. Uh, from you, from like the other perspective of the new element coming in, did you get that perception too? That like the four of you just had a unique thing that worked really well. Well, you know, I don't know if I appreciated it as much at the time as I do looking back. You know, but yeah, we did, we did have a little thing going on, and I I I told. You know, when I spoke at Harrison's funeral, the heart, Harrison was the heart and soul of the section, you know. He was the most motivated, you know. When we did our three albums, he wrote the majority of the material and, and sang the vocals, you know. And uh, he, he he had a passion, you know. I mean, he, he was always looking, you know. So, I know he wrote the song, uh, Bump the Bumped Your Booty, that was, I was, was that on our second album? But, uh, he was so big on that. He thought that was going to be like that was just a great hook. And then the record was slow coming out. And Casey and the Sunshine Band had "Shake, Shake, Shake Your Booty" come out. Harrison was just so tore up, you know. <laughs> and and uh, came out, you know, earlier with with a similar idea, you know. So you mentioned that you ended up uh, recording three albums as the Muscle Shoals Horns. How did you guys become artists. Did somebody just offer you a deal, or is that something you guys actively pursued? I think Barry was Barry Beckett was responsible. I might be wrong, but I think our first album, Barry's the one that decided that you know he wanted to produce us, and I think we were his first solo production. I think. Before that, he had produced, like he produced Mel and Tim 
with Roger Hawkins, and then he produced a series of projects with, with Jerry Wexler. But I'm thinking the Muscle Shells Horns, our Bang Records album, which is, was his first solo production. We would go over to Barry's house and work work on material, you know. Um, I remember, like, all all summer, you know. I guess, would that have been 75? Um, and um, he's the one that shopped it and got us the deal with Bang, you know. I'm, I think I'm correct about that, you know. He produced our second album also, which, uh, and then the third album, uh, Fred Foster from Monument Records had, uh, and I think Ronnie had probably uh, instigated that project. And uh, Barry and uh, Fred couldn't come up in agreement with product producers' fee on that, so we ended up self-producing the third album. You know, with with Fred as executive producer. Unfortunately, the week the album came out, you know, Monument Records went bankrupt. <laughs> Yeah. Did you guys uh, do some live shows with Arthur Alexander as the Muscle We Shows did one. We the... did. The, that album came out in 76, and uh, the, the, the single, uh, Born to Get Down, uh, was, I think maybe it was number one in Miami, you know, that summer of 76. Man, it it was high on the on the Billboard R and B single chart. I think it got to be like something like eight on the R and B chart. And so we did. Uh, we went down to uh, Florida twice. You know, some short little runs. Uh, and then we did a gig later that summer at. Uh, I know we did one at the Von Braun Center uh, opening for who was it Parliament Funkadelic or somebody like that. And then we uh, we did a show out at the uh, Lister Hill Credit Union with Arthur Alexander, and we uh, uh, we backed him up also. Our band we had had a good band. Bob Ray and Ken Bell, who had played on the on the record, were were both in the band, you know. And um, we did this we did this gig, and it didn't get promoted very much, and it it it, it wasn't well attended. And after we paid, you know, for the hall and the PA and paid, you know, our our, our rhythm section, I think the four of us were going to split half and Arthur was going to get the other half. <laughs> I think Arthur's half, after we paid the band and expenses was, I don't know, something like $28. <laughs> the four of us split, you know, the other 28 and I, uh, it is awful, but I just remember Arthur just looking at this $28 or whatever it was and you know, holding it and looking at it and going, I don't understand, <laughs> or something to that effect, you know. Uh, I don't know, it, it was awful. But uh, that was uh, the first time I played with Arthur. The second time was, was, was very unusual. Uh, we had done several Alabama Music Hall of Fame induction shows, so this is somewhere in the 80s, but uh, they still didn't have a, the building, the museum, so when they finally built the building there in Tuscumbia, and it was going to be like the grand opening, David Johnson called me, and you know, the band for the uh, 
for the induction ceremonies had always been kind of an all-star band, you know, David Hood and the Muscle Shells Horns and, uh, you know, I mean, Owen Hell was the original drummer and Steve Nathan and Clayton Ivey playing keyboards and Will McFarlane and I think Duncan Cameron were the original guitarists, you know, so it was just an excellent band and the Shells sisters singing and, but, uh, and I can't remember how many induction shows we had done at that point, maybe two or three. But uh, when they had the grand opening, David had absolutely no budget, you know. So he called me and said, Charles, I want you to put together a band and do this show, but uh, I don't have much budget. So he told me how much money he had, and it wasn't very much. So I decided just to do it with my gig band. So I had a gig band at the time, you know. And so and then I booked a trumpet player, uh, Gary Armstrong, who I mentioned, went to Sheffield and Murray, and we played in the Chicago band in, at Murray. You know, he uh, I booked him and a berry player from Nashville, and Harvey and I, and uh, a couple of other uh, a couple of other people like Barry Billings. I booked. You know, other than that, it was just my gig band, and there were like twenty eight or twenty nine songs. I mean, Clarence Carter was coming, William Lee Golden. Uh, Arthur, Alexander, I can't remember who else, but there must have been like 10 artists. And we only had one rehearsal. I wrote all these charts, rhythm and horn charts, and we had one rehearsal down at Muscle Shell Sand on the River the night before. One really long rehearsal. <laughs> and the first time we saw the artists was when they walked on the stage that day. We were out there, you know, uh, on a temporary stage on the side of the building. And no rehearsal with the artists. I had to just kind of guess how we were going to end songs and write endings. And so the first time I saw any artist was when they walked up on stage to perform, you know, and it went amazingly well. <laughs> I don't think we had any really bad train wrecks, you know. But, but Arthur came up and we sang, you know, we did three songs with him. And, and then I later, you know, when I read his the book about him, which I've quoted in a little bit, uh, he talked about how disappointed he was that day when he went there and there was no exhibit about him, you know, in the museum, you know. But but that was why that was so that was the last time I saw Arthur was there at the Hall of Fame that day. You know? One of the other artists you did some touring with was John Denver, right? Yeah, John Denver. We uh we went down. Uh, this is after Ronnie left our section and 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 Jim Horn moved to Nashville and we started doing uh, projects with him. And so he booked us, uh, Harvey and Harrison and I, and him on a, on John Denver. He was in John Denver's band, and so we went down to uh, to Miami and and did a session for him. I remember the this is after Bob uh, Marley died, but the but the rhythm section on these songs we were working on was the Whalers, you know. So uh, they put down the tracks, and we put down horns. And so through that session, we went we went out and did, you know, for a couple of summers, just gig, not not a, an entire tour, but just gigs here and there, you know. And then after that, uh, you had the Chuck Rivers band for a while? Yeah, you know, Chuck Rivers was just kind of a, uh, a silly uh, stage name that the drummer uh, Roger Clark gave me one night when we were making frozen daiquiris and I lived in his basement at the time, out on Donegan Slough, and we were making daiquiris, and I had my my uh, Rhodes piano set up, and I was taking requests and singing songs, and Roger said, you know, 
and this is just like a real lounge. <laughs> he said, you know, Charles Rose at the piano bar. So that didn't sound right. He changed it to Chuck Rose. It still didn't sound right. Chuck Rivers. Chuck Rivers. <laughs> you know, so, so I had, uh, that's still my email, you know, username. But, uh, yeah, I had a man for years, just a gig man, you know. I met my wife Edna because we were in, a, in another band together. So you know, after we after we married, we 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 had our own gig band. You know, we would play around in clubs and at the country club. Was was Edna's sister in that band too? No, when her sister Mary, when she joined us, we started playing more rock and roll, and, we, and then we called it the Carter Sisters. You know, because they were Edna and Mary Carter. You know. Leroy Thompson, you know, was in that band, Harvey Thompson, you know. Um, John Willis played guitar, Don Strigley played guitar, Duncan Cameron even subbed a lot in that band, you know. And then you eventually had to Muscle Shoals solo review for a while. Yeah, Mickey Buckins and I started that, and that was one of my favorite bands I've ever had. Started that in the, uh, in the late 90s, and... Uh, we would have a a little a little CD we made, you know, playing live down at the studio. But that was a great man. I played you know a lot of the big R and B songs from Memphis and Muscle Shows and elsewhere. You know. And and Mickey was the co-leader and the, he sang all the male songs. Yeah, he and, and Mary Mason sang the female and Kelvin Holly and Scott Boyer also one of one or the other of them would be there and they would sing a few songs also, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we could keep talking for a long time and I hope I can get you back sometime to maybe cover a few things that, that we haven't had a chance to talk about today, but I sure appreciate you taking your time today and also more in general of being a great friend and helping me arrange horns and record great horns on on my production so i want you to know that i really appreciate that and thank you so much for this past hour my pleasure andreas take uh, care all right you do the same <laughs> this is the 36th episode of the crazy chester radio hour we taped it at the nuthouse recording studio in Sheffield, Alabama. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to check out some of the earlier episodes and subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, or Stitcher. And it's also available on SoundCloud and YouTube and crazychesterrecords.com. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Mm-hmm.